17 days until Christmas. How you doing with that? <laughs> that, uh, that ver- yeah, that's right. That varies across the room. If you're uh, very young, you're probably fired up. And I received, our grandchildren are here this morning and love them all, but we received their Christmas lists. And uh, Luke, we got all their Christmas lists. Some of them were handwritten, but Luke uh, tech wrote it out and had links to Amazon and all kinds of stuff for us. <laughs> so I know what they are thinking about Christmas. But there's a lot of other emotions that come along with Christmas, feelings, thoughts. Some of you have extreme joy. Some of you, as Aaron said a moment ago, have anxiety about it. For some of you, it is extremely stressful. And it's annually stressful. That's the thing. By the way, if it's annually stressful, that really deserves some time and thought. So it says, where is that coming from? That video that we just watched and the words on there, uh, Merry Christmas becomes a buried Christmas. And by the way, it happens, uh, a lot of the stuff is buried within about five seconds after the the presents are opened. Peace. So what kind of emotion is it evoking in you right now? And where is that coming from? Honestly, a lot of the stress is about money. And we're going to talk about money today. But we're going to talk about it from a different angle than maybe you've considered before. And I hope the message, although it's three kind of separate focal points, they all weave together. And I think that you will find them to be useful to you. So we're continuing the study of the nuances, the true meaning the significance, the power of the incarnation of God with us, the Lord Jesus, humbling himself and becoming like us so that he might take our place on Calvary and thus secure for us redemption and salvation and eternal life and absolute security. And there will be a time when we'll be free from all of the stressors and from the sadness and from the anxiety because we'll be in an environment where there's absolute safety and security, absolute comfort, absolute peace in the presence of the Lord Jesus. But this book that you've been studying, The Advent Conspiracy, I've been so intrigued with it. Aaron sent me a copy so that I could read and kind of catch up with where you are. And I am intrigued. And by the way, I want you to know I've Uh, struggled, in a sense, with this message more than any I can remember in quite some time because that book challenged me to think about what I'm thinking about in Christmas. Sometimes we need to stop and think about what we're thinking about and why are we thinking that way. And so the design is to address that. You considered last week worship fully and the examples of what wholehearted worship, full worship really looks like. I was thinking as we were singing a while ago, these moments are so precious and beautiful and you're expressing praise and worship and some of you are quiet and your heads are bowed and some of your eyes wide open to the heavens with your arms up. However you express it, you're engaged in worship. The question that I had to ask myself is where is the disconnect between these moments that we just experienced And some of the stress and anxiety and frustration and money pressure and disagreements inside the household about how much we're going to spend, what can we afford, why are we doing that, 
family coming, all of those kinds of things. Where's the disconnect between the worship, which is actually the essence of Christmas, right? We always say Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet I need to own for you, and maybe you're in this same camp, that quite frequently, looking back over 65 Christmases, or 64 Christmases now, it's about to be 65, looking back over those, I see that most of them have been, when it really gets down to celebrating the day that it's all about, the focus, the energy, the emotion, the value is placed on a lot of other things. And that's cultural. We've created that. And I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at it. I'm just saying it, it's good for us to recognize what it actually is. And the book helps us deconstruct how we've come to view Christmas as a holiday and pull away all of the things that are not Jesus. Because in its essence, it is 100% about Jesus. By the way, this full worship, the examples, you talked about uh, Zechariah who was faithful and all of the people when Zechariah came out of the temple, all of the people who were hopeful and so they're worshiping and then Mary, she is chosen and she is worshiping and Joseph, we're going to talk about him, he begins to worship when he hears the word from the angel of the Lord and Elizabeth, the mother of the forerunner, John the Baptist, she worships. The shepherds in the field, they're stunned but they worship. Simon, when Jesus is brought to the temple, he worships, thanking God for God's fulfillment of the promise. And then Anna, the prophetess, she worships. And the Magi, they worship. So there's worship all over the place. This is about worship, and it's about Jesus. He's the centerpiece. So the question is, in most of our homes... The tree is the centerpiece now. And my question to me, I'm not asking you, my question to me is, where does that, what role does that have as opposed to the person of the Lord Jesus? I'm not, listen, I'm not anti-Christmas. I'm, I'm as happy to get gifts as anybody else is, <laughs> okay? And I'm excited to, I, oh, and I just tear it open and throw the paper in the floor and we do all that stuff. But we owe it to ourselves as believers to reset the table. The title of the message today is really direct, and it might sound a little bit abrupt. And you know what the title is? Spend less. That's the title of the message. Now, stay with me, okay? Because this is not going to be a discourse just on money. But there's a concept here that we need to look at. So that's the title of the message Spend less, and I got your attention, didn't I, by the way? <laughs> Did anybody miss that? Spend less. Okay, there we go. So in fact, some of you will walk out like, that preacher said we should spend less. And one of you will tell the other spouse, we should spend less. <laughs> right? That'll be your support for your case. All right, take a look. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1. These are very familiar, but I want to use two passages to set the table for you here. Matthew chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. <clears throat> We're going to focus in on Joseph in a minute. 
But before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So I want to start the message with Jesus. Everything that you and I are in Christ is the result of the Lord Jesus extending to us grace and mercy at Calvary and the Lord birthing into us brand new life. And he is our role model. He is our example. He is our guide. He is our comfort, our counselor. He's the one who disciplines and instructs us. So everything starts with Jesus. And in starting with Jesus, it's important to remember. Now, this is his whole life. It's not just the birth. But everything about Jesus coming and his entire life was lived in humility and simplicity. So if he's the role model, there's a lesson right there. We almost could stop right there and say the role model, even for the celebration of his birth, is humility and simplicity. He grew in knowledge, wisdom, and favor with God and man. He modeled humble submission to the will of God. He lived with focus on the people around him and how they might be related to the kingdom of God. That was his focus. And there's not any place in the New Testament where you will find him disfocused. He was focused like a laser beam on fulfilling God's plan expanding the kingdom of God, and what, how was that going to happen? In meeting people, drawing people, challenging people, loving people. So he's our model. So that becomes the model for everything that we do relative to the Lord Jesus. Nothing he ever did was focused on him. It was focused on obedience to the Father and loving the people. There's another role model for us. Simple, humble, focused on the Father and people. Whew. That almost kind of empowers right now. That's, that's inviting, isn't it? That's attractive. That releases anxiety. That reduces stress when you think about simple and humble and focus on the Father and loving people. That changes the whole equation for what this holiday is about. Now let's go to Mary. Mary was astonished. You know she was a teenage girl. Some say as young as 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere in there. 
So when she receives the visit from the angel and the Lord says to her what's going to happen, uh, the only response is, I am the Lord's servant. She does ask one question, how can this be? How am I going to give birth to a son? I'm a virgin. And the Lord explains that and she comes back and says, okay. But she's in awe. She is humbled. She's astonished. But there's no doubt that she's completely intrigued and probably, in our vernacular, a little bit freaked out. Right? Just a little bit freaked out. Because I tell you, don't forget the fact that somewhere in those moments, after the whirlwind, it dawned on her, she's got a conversation she's got to have with somebody. That's real world, right? She's the mother of the Lord Jesus, but she was human. And she recognized there was a conversation to have with Joseph. So how about Joseph? How did Joseph respond to it all? Well, this is a tough situation. Put yourself in this, in this environment. Put yourself in this environment. You're being told, men, that the woman to whom you're engaged... Uh, she's telling you that she is going to have a child, but it's by the Spirit of God. So human nature does what human nature does. And since that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, what do we do when things don't make sense? We create our own narrative. And we default to our own narrative, and the own narrative says, okay, she's had an affair. What happens? And so Joseph's presupposition, his initial response was very human. And it was not unreasonable. When you look at what he had been told, it was not unreasonable. So he said, okay, not my plan. I didn't sign up for this. But I love her enough to protect her reputation because there was massive consequences potentially for her in this environment. This was real serious as it ought to be even today. But then the angel of the Lord speaks to him and when the angel of the Lord speaks to him, he chose faith over fear and over frustration and over disappointment, and over a radical change in his plan for life. He chose faith. That's a decision. What an emotion. It was a decision. There may be emotion, but the choice for faith is a decision. It's an act of the will, not a function of the emotions. So he chooses faith and he surrenders his hopes and dreams and his plans to God completely. This is radical. In fact, here's, there's a lot of things that I've learned about this story over the years that some of which I just learned in this preparation. So when it talks about, so they learn, they're in Nazareth and then, you know, the call for the tax and so they have to travel now to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph is from so that they can go and be registered for the tax, right? 
Did you know that it's between 80 and 90 miles? That distance is between 80 and 90 miles. I don't know whether Mary was riding on the back of a donkey or in a cart being pulled by a donkey or whatever, but that's a serious trip for a woman who's expecting a child. And yet Joseph facilitates it faithfully, and he makes provision, and he does the right thing in obedience to the government. He does the right thing for his wife and for the future child, but he has set aside his life completely at this point by faith. So, Joseph then chooses to demonstrate. Not only does he choose when he hears what the angel says, that this is the work of God. He chooses faith and then he demonstrates his faith. Look at Luke chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 2, first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the towns of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the line, the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. Makes sense. <laughs> you and I probably would have been as well. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. That is the best news the human ear has ever heard. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So there is the demonstration of his proclamation. Joseph said, I'll trust, and then he acted. By the way, action, sometimes we are prone as humans and even as believers, when we hear a word from God, we'll be emotionally stirred, and there'll be an emotional commitment and response, and I'm in, I'm all in, I'm going to do that, I'm going to give up that, I'm going to change this, all of, all of those kinds of things. But that is never validated until it turns into action, right? It's never validated. It's only words. And by the way, here's just a little aside. Uh, feelings always follow action. It's not the other way around. We don't feel ourselves into behaving differently. We behave ourselves into feeling differently that changes the game so when a commitment is made when Joseph chooses faith somehow he knows that's got to go into action it's got to be demonstrated or it'll slip away and sometimes it can slip away before the end of the service and you walk out that door so we turn our faith into action and that is exactly what 
Joseph did. He chose to live submitted, not demanding his own way. He had a life plan. He was a carpenter. He was fully ready to embrace her and probably wanted to have kids. And as you know, they went on to have at least four sons and at least two daughters. Right? So he took responsibility for life, understanding that it was going to look a lot different than he had planned. He submitted to God even when it was inconvenient or hard. It was costly. In fact, the next couple of years are going to be nothing but moving and changing virtually everything on a very regular basis. So first they go to Nazareth for taxation, and then they present Jesus for circumcision, and then they take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord speaks to Joseph. Then, by the way, it's interesting that after Mary's conversation with the angels, did you know that every conversation between God and Mary and Joseph happens between God and Joseph? Every conversation from that point forward happens with Joseph. The Lord is guiding him in a series of massive changes in his life, and he has a listening ear to obey. And the Lord says, you need to take the baby and go to Egypt. And that precedes the slaughter of the innocents. And then the Lord, while they're in Egypt, says, come on back to Israel. And they come, and they think they're going to kind of camp out in that area, and the Lord says to him, no, go back to Nazareth. So there is upheaval and change and stuff going on and Joseph steps up in faith. Now there's a second point and the second point under the topic of spend less is live simply rather than with an attitude of I deserve. Live simply rather than with an attitude of I deserve. I want you to turn back with me if you would real quick to Matthew chapter 6 for just a second. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. Now stay with me here cuz we're going to get we're going to get to spend less. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is Jesus speaking by the way. Remember this. Jesus is speaking. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. What are you seeing? What perspective, what mindset, what frame, what are you seeing? If your eyes are good, your body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's a hard place to be. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Now remember, this is, who's our example? What's overarching everything here? The Lord Jesus. Jesus says to his people, to you and me, you cannot serve two masters. That's not just a great idea. It's not just something you ought to think about. He states that as an absolute truth that's inviolable. 
And if it's an absolute truth that's in Bible, it simply means this. You will either do that or you will do the other. Because initially you might think you're doing both and you've got it kind of in balance and it's working okay for you right at the moment. But over time you will drift completely to one or the other. And the whole mindset that comes along with each one will become the dominant mindset and the way you approach life and relationships and your finances. We don't take that one nearly seriously enough. I would imagine that most of you have heard that passage many, many times. But the question is never did I hear it. The question is, did I apply it? Am I acting on it? Is it behavioral or is it just knowledge? All teaching and preaching, boy, hang on to this, all teaching and preaching inside this building or any other church is for the purpose of action, not for knowledge. Knowledge is corollary, right? I mean, of course it's useful, but we know enough right now to know some things we ought to change. The point of all of the teaching is behavioral change and action, not just knowledge. So Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what's your mindset about money and finances and wealth? What is your mindset about that? Everybody's got one. In our culture, it's a, this is a consumer culture. And money is in our face or in our ears all the time via every conceivable type of media delivery. And then there's the reality of life. You look at the checkbook, and it's what it is. Or there's that end of the month, here's all the bills. How much money do we have versus the bills? And it becomes stressful and it creates disharmony. And you and I know that the number one cause, the number one cause of disruption in the home is over finances. Now, there's others that are close second and third and fourth. But the number one cause is stress and struggle over finances. And sometimes it's the absence of finances, right? Or sometimes it's just the use of finances or the undisclosed use of finances. There's all kinds of things that go with this. Jesus just simply sets a bar here, and it's reflected in other passages where he says, you've got to get clear on this because it's going to impact your own heart, your own spirit, your own effectiveness as a believer, but it's going to also impact your spouse if you're married. And if there are children in the home, it's absolutely going to impact them. This is not just about me. This is about everybody around me. Because my mindset about money, about God versus mammon, it has a trickle-down effect. What do, you deserve? what do you feel like you deserve? What do you feel like you're entitled to? Why are you spending what you're spending? Aren't y'all glad I'm not going to be here next Sunday? <laughs> I'm trying to get it all in in the next seven minutes, okay? Because 
I may not ever be here again. But why are you spending what you're spending? I owe, you know what I learned a long time ago from a dear friend? We owe it to each other to tell each other the unvarnished truth. If we say anything less, we're not really a friend. And here's the unvarnished truth. We need to look at why. It's not just what we're spending. Why are we spending it? Am I spending it because of pressure? Am I spending it to medicate myself? Am I spending it because of guilt? It's been a rough year and me and the wife and the kids, you know, kind of out of sync and I'm a little guilty over that. So I'll overspend to try to make up from it. That happens. You know that, right? Am I spending out of obligation? Am I spending trying to make up for something? Restitution. Am I spending trying to make peace and cover over the upset? Am I spending because I want to show my wife, my kids, and my neighbors that I provide well? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Focused stewardship. It's extremely important. Because it's one of those things that seeps down and it eventually seeps all the way through your heart and your mind and your way of life. So, living simply rather than deserving. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, this is parallel, but he talks about storing up treasures in heaven, right? We're going to store up treasures in heaven. So here's the key thing. What are the treasures he's talking about? So let me give you the Matthew 25 passage. Don't look there. Just Here's what Jesus said was important. Giving to the hungry. Giving to the thirsty. Giving to strangers who are in isolation and in need of friends and care. Giving to those who need clothing. And by the way, that's adult children and babies. And it's happening right here in Mount Juliet just as much as it is in Dallas, Texas. And remember, that's Jesus speaking there too. So he's getting real clear about priorities. Simple humility, loving God, focusing on loving people. The sick who need companionship, encouragement, prayer, help. Prisoners whose lives are in disarray in need of love and truth. Mercy and justice, a witness of the gospel, and compassion in action. If you want to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, that's the list. That's the list. Those are behavioral. And you come specifically, not just being a nice guy, you come with the mindset that I am an ambassador for Christ. I am a steward of everything that God's entrusted to me. And in the name of Jesus, I bring this to you. Whether it's a thing or money or help or support or a hug or the witness directly. Or the visiting the sick in their homes who are lonely. There are more senior adults being left abandoned. And I'm not not out in the street, but nobody comes to see them. Nobody calls them. Nobody cares. It's a nuisance because our priorities are so out of whack that we can't see the reality of ministering to those prisoners. 
Did you know that generally speaking, in all prison populations, they are real receptive to the gospel? There's always exceptions. I get that. But there are those who will be very receptive. It's a matter of heart. Do I care about those people? Do I even see them? Is it obligatory? If I'm doing it, is it obligatory or is it really a heart of service to Jesus? You can't serve two masters. This impacts how we handle money and why we do what we do. And the question ultimately is, as Jesus talks about in both passages, will I trust God to make the provision that Jesus promised God will make for my needs. Why do you worry about that? God feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. How much more will he take care of you? Do we take that seriously? Will we stand in faith even though we don't see the fruit instantly and believe that he will fulfill our needs? Now, there's a difference between needs and wants, right? (laughs) We're in a want culture. Deconstruct your wants. Pull away everything that's not really in need and just see what you got and make decisions from there. So, living submitted, living simply. And then the last point, living satisfied rather than dissatisfied. Can't blame our culture. Everybody said, well, our culture is just taking us down a tough road with money and it's competitive and blah 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 blah. you know it's fine blame the culture if you want to but at a moment in time I gotta own this in my house I gotta own it in my heart first then I gotta own it in my house and learn to live satisfied 1st Timothy chapter 6 It's worth reading the whole chapter, <clears throat> starting with verse 3, but here's chapter, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, if we have food and clothing, listen to that, every word matters here, we, with this we will be content. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction and broken homes and broken hearts. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then a passage that's not on the screen This is the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you have renewed your concern for me. He's writing to believers in Philippi while he's in Rome in prison. Rejoice greatly that you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned for me, but you lacked opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And by the way, that phrase is taken out of context. The context is Paul is saying, if there's a lot on the table, if there's very little on the table, 
I can deal with both of those because I'm trusting him one way or the other. That doesn't mean that I can go out and at my age and lift a 300-pound barbell. I can do all things through Christ. That's not what that is. It's very specific. I can put up with whatever circumstance and condition I am in, trusting the sovereignty of God that he knows he's sovereign over it and he will meet my needs. So I'm not going to fret about this. The secret, I've learned the secret. The secret is submission from the heart to Jesus, living in trust, simplicity, like Jesus did, living with a heart towards God, a heart towards people, knowing that he will meet my needs as he designs. So, faith to trust like Joseph, focused stewardship, not ownership. All of life is stewardship. The next conversation you have with the next person is stewardship of influence, obviously money, relationship. It's all, in, it's all stewardship. Faith to trust, focused stewardship, and then learned and disciplined contentment. Learned and disciplined contentment. I choose to be content in this moment. Give us this day our daily bread. He'll do that, and he'll take care of tomorrow as well. Don't know where this is hitting you. It's a lot of stuff. But I want you to have a Merry Christmas. And I know this, that it's going to require, it it earns a refocus on what is this about. And not what, who. Who is this about? And how would I best express my love for Jesus? By overspending my budget to the extent that I am strapped for the next six months? Or how about this? Spend less so that I can give more. How about that? Spend less so that I can give more to those who are without food who are thirsty, who are without clothing, who are in prison, who are sick. It's a different paradigm. It's worth your consideration. I want to invite the band to come back up, close the service, and invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, you focused on simplicity and humility. That's the model that you gave us. And you honored your Father's will and plan. And by doing that, Lord, you've sought out people and you loved them. And you brought all of us here to redemption. And you did that with your personal presence. Not with a lot of gifts wrapped with paper and bows. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to reset the table. I pray that you'd help us to think about it. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to not fall into the trap of, oh, well, we're already in it for this Christmas. We'll do it now and we'll change it next time. Lord, 
Check us on that. Help us to walk out and act on this and find ways to reframe, to redirect a new orientation about what we're going to do. Conversations with our spouses, conversations with our children, conversations with our grandchildren, and all of the expectations that we have created that in turn have created pressure on us. Lord, help us to reorient and reframe so that in fact and in truth, we don't just give you a tip at Christmas and then spend all of our treasure on gifts for people. Lord, that's out of, that's out of whack. Lord, help us to redirect to be great stewards and to realize that you are the greatest treasure to give to you and in your name to value those things that you value to love those things that you loved to store up treasures in heaven all bringing glory to your name Father do your work among us now communion tables are here to remember the Lord Jesus simply humbly lovingly he sacrificed for us you want to come and be sure that your fellowship right here right now is respectful and remembering him in this very season come on the altar lay down that's a place where you could lay down the idols of I deserve, I want, I'm entitled to. Those are idols and they've got to be laid down. The altar is a great place to do that. And then the cross itself and the notes that you might write. Remind yourself in a real fresh way that He alone is the reason for the season. All the rest of it, not criticizing it. It's fine. But where's your focus? And is the focus obvious in your home? That's the question. Stand with me as the man leads us in song.